This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once, Then Never Again. Now on air and worldwide, paytaxeslater.com. Now get ready to talk smart money. And welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg, along with CPA and attorney Jim Lang. Who wouldn't want to invest like Warren Buffett? He's one of the most successful investors in the world, and yet most people don't follow his recommendations about where they should be putting their money. Our guest tonight, nationally recognized investment expert Larry Swedro, is the author of the book Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, the winning strategy to help you achieve your financial and life goals. Like Warren Buffett, Larry believes that passive investing through index funds is the best path to prosperity, and he's done the research to back it up. Larry is Director of Research for Buckingham Asset Management, including the Warren Buffett book we'll be talking about tonight. He's authored 14 others, including his latest, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, and he's working on book number 15 as well, called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. Over the next hour, you'll learn a great deal about passive and active investing and how to get into that Warren Buffett mindset. So let's get started by saying good evening to Jim Lang and Larry Swedro. Welcome, Larry. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Good. It's always a pleasure to have you on because... Um, not only do you have um, a great, let's say, deal of wisdom, but it's in so many areas. You know, like like Dan mentioned, the author of 14 books. Um, we're probably going to concentrate a little bit on Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. But your book on Alpha and your book on Mistakes um, are also wonderful books. And, and if people are interested in your books, I would probably just go to... Amazon, um, we're probably going to be spending the most time on Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett of the 14 books, and I know you're working on another one, although I guess that's a constant state. Um, My favorite is the Warren Buffett, the Mistake Book, and the Alpha Book. But anyway, Warren Buffett is probably one of the most successful active investors of our time, Um, very durable, uh, people who... um, bought in, if you will, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago or doing very, very well today. So a lot of people are interested in investing more like Warren Buffett. On the other hand, Warren Buffett is an active manager and you usually recommend passive investment strategies. What could somebody who is, let's say, trying to be like Warren Buffett, but they are also buying into the passive investments, what should they be thinking about as they're developing their portfolio? Well, I think, uh, Jim, a good place to start that discussion is to note what I found to be probably the biggest anomaly in all of finance, which is if you ask people who they think the greatest investor of all time is, I think you and I could agree that probably 98% of them would say Warren Buffett maybe a Sprinkling might throw in Peter Lynch and maybe somebody else. And yet, despite that fact, the vast majority of people not only ignore Warren Buffett's advice, which he hands out liberally uh, on national television and in his annual letters to the Berkshire uh, Hathaway shareholders, but they tend to do exactly the opposite of what he recommends. 
And in my book, I touch on three key uh, areas that investors, they just follow those three, would be served so much better and end up with much better results. Well, that, well then maybe that's because people are listening to Kramer on TV. I think that they <laughs> certainly tend to listen to Kramer probably more uh, than uh, Warren Buffett, well, unfortunately, that's true. Well, to be fair, if you listen to Kramer and you followed all of his advice, today you would have one million dollars if you started with two million. <laughs> yeah. By, by the way, that's a, a that's a, a joke. Website. Before I get sued. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a website that has tracked uh, uh, Kramer's recommendations, and there are several academic papers actually that have also done so. And they found that basically there is zero alpha even before expenses in his recommendations. And with the only alpha that tends to occur is to the institutional investors. And here's what happens. Kramer comes out with a recommendation, say, to buy a stock. The next morning, the stock jumps up because, uh, I'll use the phrase, dumb retail money thinks Kramer knows something. The institutions sit on the sideline on wait. Then they come in and short the stocks, driving the price back down, and it ends up right back where it started. So the institutions make money and the individuals lose. Well, that that almost sounds like a, a conspiracy, if you will. I, I, hope, I hope Kramer isn't benefiting from that information. I'm, I'm hoping that he is, um, even if he's wrong, that he, like you, is a fiduciary advisor that has nothing but the best interests of his audience in mind, which is... I think he certainly does, although I don't know him personally. I think he's a very smart guy, but he's become an entertainer rather than an advisor. All right, well, well, let's get back to what you had said earlier about Warren Buffett. So first, we know that Warren Buffett... Um, gives his advice freely, um, very frankly. Uh, the letters to the shareholders that he writes in the annual reports for Berkshire Hathaway are almost considered like a great financial resource in and of themselves, both for their content and their excellent prose. So he, as you said, he isn't shy about giving people advice um, what advice does he give that most people do the opposite? Right. So I broke this down in my book into three big uh, issues that I thought would help people. And the first one is, should you use active or passive funds? Now, we know that while there's a trend towards more passive investing, uh, with the key uh, leader in that effort, of course, being John Bogle, I hope I've done my part to contribute. Uh, but the fact is, even today, probably 80% or more of individuals have their money invested in actively managed funds. Now, that's way down from the 99% of 20 years ago. So there is a trend there. So Buffett specifically on this issue, here's what he has said. By periodically investing in an index fund, the know-nothing investor can actually outperform most investment professionals. And then he added, most investors, both institutional and individual, will find that the best way to own common stocks is through an index fund that charges minimal fees, and those following this path 
are sure to beat the net results after fees and expenses delivered by the vast majority of professionals. So his advice is very clear there. Do not use active funds. So basically he's saying do as I say, not as I do, because, of course, he's running, um, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's certainly one of the huge active, actively managed companies in the world. Well, uh, I would say it this way. Buffett might be saying this. If you look in the mirror and you see Warren Buffett, you can go ahead and try to pick stocks and beat the market. But I'm the only one who does that. Maybe me and Charlie Munger. So unless you think you've got the skill set and access to information that Buffett has, as well as his discipline, you are far more likely to produce better results by just building broadly diversified portfolios using index funds and then staying the course and, and very importantly, avoiding panic selling. And I think, isn't that one of the main focuses of a different book, and I, I, I don't like to plug more than one book because then people might buy n none, but to me, the, the most fun and let's say the most readable of, of your books is Think, Act, and Invest, like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedrow, S-W-E-D-R-O-E, and that and, and maybe about 10 others or 13 others are available on, on Amazon. Right. But but what you're describing there sounds like another one of your books, which is The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. And I think there, that book and Warren Buffett are saying the same thing, which is it's just too difficult, um, particularly after fees and expenses, for an active money manager to beat the index. Yeah, it's not that it's impossible. And of course, that's slim odds of outperforming uh, provide that hope. Uh, but here's the important message uh, that uh, in my book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. Twenty years ago, a fellow named Charles Ellis, one of the most respected men in our industry, he wrote a book called Winning the Loser's Game. Now, a loser's game is one where it's possible to win, but the odds of doing so are so poor that the prudent thing is not to try to play, not to try at all, and just don't play. So we, I'm sure we can all think of losers' games like roulette or buying lottery tickets or any game at the Las Vegas casinos where they have the odds. Sure, you can win. It's possible. Uh, and you might even be willing to lose some as an entertainment account, but you wouldn't take your retirement account there. And when Ellis wrote his book almost 20 years ago, he noted that about 20% of actively managed funds were generating statistically significant alpha. So you could say it wasn't luck. That still meant that 80% were failing, and that's even before the impact of taxes that individuals had to pay that number would rise to about 90% on an after-tax basis. Today, that 80% failure rate is now up to 98% before taxes. So only about 2% of active managed funds are generating statistically significant alpha, even if you're investing in your IRA, and maybe 1% if it's in a taxable account. Now, I don't know about you, Jim, but I don't like playing a game where I have a one in roughly 50 chance of winning pre-tax 
and one in a hundred winning after tax. So we have some uh, Missouri type people show me. Can you give me a source for that statistic? Because there's going to be a lot of active money managers who are going to want to argue with that. And um, I want to arm our listeners um, with that information and where they could find that. Well, the best place is go pick up a copy of my book, which cites the academic research. And one of the papers uh, was written by a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Gene Famo, and his colleague, Ken French, called Luck versus Skill and Mutual Fund Performance. Uh, And that paper is several years old, and a more recent paper uh, also came to the same conclusion. But I can add this. This may surprise most of your listeners. Now, we all know that Warren Buffett has had a tremendous track record. Uh, But what most people don't know is that almost all of his success occurred prior to the last 15 years when the markets have gotten, call it, smarter as the academic research has uncovered the type of stocks that Warren Buffett bought uh, and have now built mutual funds that gain exposure to them. So I know you and I uh, both use funds of dimensional fund advisors uh, to gain access to the type of value stocks that Warren Buffett bought. So if we look at Berkshire Hathaway's returns, uh, and I wrote this up recently, for the 15-year period ending March 2016, Berkshire returned 8.2%. Now, the DFA runs two domestic value funds. One of them is large value. It returns 7.4. The other is small value, which returned 10.1. The average of those two is 8.8, and Berkshire returned 8.2. So, you know, it's hard to argue even now that Berkshire is able to outperform similarly risky investments. So that's a pretty good example of uh, the point we've made, that if you look back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, Buffett was swamping, you know, uh, you know, comparable funds. And today, for the last 15 years, he's had a very difficult time generating outperformance on a risk-adjusted basis. All right. So, so is it fair to say that you're saying that for the last 15 years, one major source of his outperformance, if you're even going to call it that, Mm. would actually be an asset allocation issue, which he was just much smarter than, say, uh, a typical mutual fund or even a standard recommendation by Vanguard that would not have as high exposure to uh, small value or um, small, small value or large value. Yeah. So let me say it this way. There are, we now know today the secret sauce that Buffett used. This is, I think, a good way for investors to think about it. We all want to know the secret sauce. Right. So everybody's uh, perking up now. Oh, boy, secret sauce. Right. All right, Larry, and, tell, us, uh, tell us the secret sauce. Right. And he got that secret sauce from his mentors, David Dodd and Benjamin Graham, uh, who authored the book Security Analysis. Uh, And Buffett, this wasn't so secret. He would tell people for decades, here's the type of stocks I buy. And the first thing that the academics uncovered 
by the way, and often academics uncover these sources of excess returns by studying the performance of great investors, people who add high returns to, the, to figure out if their secret sauce could be replicated, meaning was there a common characteristic in a stock that anyone could identify and just buy all the stocks with that characteristic, or was their secret sauce you know, not replicable. It was a skill set that they have, so there would be no common trait that would be replicable. So in the 1980s, academic research began to be published that showed that value stocks, stocks that had low prices relative to earnings or book value or cash flow, outperformed the market by roughly 5% a year. And eventually, then, mutual funds like Vanguard would create a value index fund. DFA, the fund family we use, mostly created more sophisticated versions. Uh, and that captured much of Buffett's alpha, because they would just buy all of the stocks. But still, Buffett outperformed those value funds. There was another missing ingredient that the academics hadn't uncovered. And then in 2006, Ken French and Jean Fama, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a paper that showed more profitable firms were generating higher returns, even though you paid a higher price for them. So they had higher price-earnings ratios, but that still did not prevent them from providing higher returns. And over time, more research uh, came out on that. In 2012, a fellow named Robert Novi Marx wrote a paper showing that if you focus on what he called gross profitability, not earnings, but uh, earnings, uh, the revenue minus cost of goods sold, you actually generated about a 3.5% a year premium, and it enhanced the value of value strategies. So in other words, if you bought value stocks, stocks with low prices to earnings, but also then bought companies that were higher return on equity, higher gross profitability, you would do better. And the academics expanded on that, uh, and funds like DFA began to incorporate it. And today, that research has been further expanded uh, to include what's called the quality factor, so not only was Buffett buying stocks that had higher return on equity, for example, or higher earnings, but he tended to buy higher quality companies. Many of your listeners may know Buffett has often talked about companies that have moats around them, so that gives them some protection. These companies tend to have more stable earnings, they tend to have higher margins, and they tend to use less leverage uh, and now we know there was a paper called uh, Buffett's Alpha that identified these common characteristics. And now we know that if you simply bought all of the types of stocks that Buffett bought, not just the ones he bought, but all of the stocks that had these common characteristics, you would have had basically the same return as Buffett if you also had his famous discipline. Now, very importantly, Jim, I don't want your listeners to get the wrong message. This takes nothing 
away from Buffett's accomplishments. He figured this stuff out 50 years before the academics. But today, you don't need to be Warren Buffett to buy the same types of stocks. There are mutual funds like those of DFA and fund family we use, AQR, and other fund family we use, Bridgeway, and others are incorporating these factors. We now know that it's important to buy the type of stocks, not which ones, and that's what's showing up. Berkshire has not outperformed, as I mentioned, the combination of a DFA large and small value in the last 15 years. Larry is the author of Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Again, that's Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedro, S-W-E-D-R-O-E, available on Amazon. I'm a big fan of Larry's books. I like that one. I like his The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, and I like his book of uh, investment mistakes even smart investors make um, and how to avoid them. So, Larry, you had mentioned French and Fama several times as authors of an important study, um, and they are, uh, let's say, the founding members and are still very, very involved with the group of index funds that, that we are advocates of, that is both your firm and ours, which is called Dimensional Fund Advisors. Um, and you talked about... A, an additional premium. I think a lot of people know about the equity, the equity premium, meaning you are willing to buy companies instead of lending money to companies that you can, over a longer period of time, expect a higher return. And we have spent the first uh, portion talking about um, some of the advantages of a value and a small value premium, meaning that if you invest in smaller companies and if you invest in value, that is companies that have a lower price earnings ratio that over a longer period of time, you can expect a higher return. And that is a, a premium. And I think that a lot of people know about that. But French and Fama actually identified a, an other premium that you call profitability. Can you tell our listeners about the profitability premium and what the impact of that is on investors and DFA and how that might compare to, um, let's say, a, an excellent set of index funds that doesn't use that, perhaps like Vanguard? Yeah, well, uh, Professors uh, Fama and French are best known for creating what was called the three-factor model uh, uh, it added on to our understanding of how markets work. Uh, prior to their paper, which was published in 1993, uh, the only premium that investors tended to focus on, because it was the only one that was documented in the literature, was this equity risk premium, which has been about 8% a year. Fama and French summarized prior research, which showed that small companies tended to outperform large companies by about 3% a year, and value companies tended to outperform growth companies by about 5% a year. And that led to the development of index funds like Vanguard's uh, to capture these premium as indexes were created by uh, companies such as Standard & Poor's and uh, Morgan Stanley's country indices and the Russell indices, they all publish these smaller cap indices and value industries 
and then Vanguard created mutual funds to replicate them. DFA operates a little differently. They don't actually create index funds, which just purely replicate some popular index, but they instead use academic definitions of these uh, factors, as they're called, which can be somewhat different from index uh, funds, and we believe that they deliver superior results, and that's why we use them. Uh, it was, in, uh, as we discussed earlier, in 2006, Farm and French, in their research, uncovered this other newer factor on profitability uh, and found that companies that have higher return on equity, higher uh, cash flows, um, and uh, higher gross profitability, so higher uh, sales minus the gross uh, the cost of the sales, the, so that profit margin, actually tend to look like growth stocks. They're growing uh, faster, but they still outperform. So they started to screen for this profitability factor in their funds uh, and added that to their construction model. So they would buy value stocks, but then add uh, exposure to these companies and focus on ones that had greater profitability. The index funds that Vanguard have, for example, at least currently don't do that. So that's one of the benefits uh, because these retail indices don't add that profitability factor in. Okay, so let's let's take a, a, a look at that. So let's say, for example, that uh, French and Farmer said, hey, there's this profitability premium that we have identified. Um, we're not going to use a traditional... Um, let's say, definition of an index, but we're going to have, whether you call it an enhanced index or you use the term academic version of an index, and we're going to include a profitability um, portion or a weighting to the, to the equities or the stocks that we pick. Um, and then if they are right, then theoretically, and let's forget about expenses for a moment, if they are right, they should theoretically, either looking back or what they actually did, um, outperform a straight index fund that doesn't have a profitability premium built in. Is that correct? That's correct, because the profit profitable stocks, if you look at them in isolation and don't look at their other factors, uh, have outperformed the low profitability stocks by about 3.5% a year. Uh, but the value premium captures some of that. If you add in profitability, you probably can pick up somewhere in the area of about 50 basis points a year. So that's what DFA thinks that they will add over the long term if over just a pure value fund. That's one of the, uh, the ways that they can differentiate is by screening for this profitability factor and more heavily weighting the stocks in their fund that are more profitable and providing that benefit. One other thing, uh, Jim, uh, is this. Vanguard uses popular indices, and I'm just going to use a simple example for your audience. So let's say there's an index that splits stocks uh, between the top half uh, of stocks if you rank by price-to-earnings ratios, so the ones that have the highest PEs are called growth, 
and the bottom half of stocks are value, and Vanguard's value fund buys those bottom 50%. DFA, using an academic definition, the way academics tend to split things up, is they would take the bottom 30% of stocks in that index if when you rank them. So if you buy the stocks that have the bottom 30% as ranked by price-to-earnings ratio, you'll end up with stocks that have, on average, a lower P.E. ratio than if you buy the bottom half. That's simple math, right? So if you look at DFA's value funds and compare them to Vanguard's value funds, you will note that they tend to have lower price-earnings ratios, lower price-to-book ratios, lower price-to-cash flow ratios, which means, based on the evidence, that you also have higher returns in the past and should expect them as well in the future. So that's some of the differences. Okay, and then there, then there's also a, uh, let's say, another filter of what's called profitability. Right. All right, so now I'm going to walk without a, without a net for a moment. Okay, so we have some of these theoretical differences, and I guess that we could expand that theoretical t- difference to not only the value, that is not just picking the lower half, but picking the lower third, they might do the same thing with size. So they're not necessarily picking the lower half that go into their small um, indexes, but maybe the lower third. Um, That's exactly right. And if you look at, for example, Vanguard's small value fund, it has an average market capitalization, uh, last time I looked, at about $2.8 billion. DFA's fund had an average market capitalization of about half of that. So the evidence shows that the smaller the company, the higher the historical return. So it doesn't mean Vanguard's fund is bad. It does exactly what it's supposed to and does it at very low cost. It just doesn't give you as much exposure to that size factor or the value factor. So you capture less of the premium than the DFA funds do. All right, so let me see if I am correctly paraphrasing you that uh, DFA has their value funds actually have a lower price-earnings ratio than, say, the equivalent value fund in Vanguard, for example, and their small companies are actually smaller. That is, they have a lower total capitalization than the small in, say, Vanguard, and at least historically – the smaller ones um, have outperformed, that is, the, let's call it very small or micro, have outperformed small, and the uh, very low price earnings ratio have still outperformed what might traditionally be called value, but value with a higher price earnings ratio. And if you combine those two, you can expect better performance. Is that a fair yeah, and the logic characterization? Is- simple as well. What the research shows, these companies are riskier, uh, and therefore they requ- investors require a larger premium to invest in them. That means they will only buy them if their prices are lower. So um, here's a good example for your audience. I'm just pulling up while we're chatting. The DFA uh, small value fund currently has an average market capitalization of $1.4 billion, and the Vanguard Fund has an average market capitalization of $2.9 billion. 
the DFA funds uh, has a weighted average price earnings ratio of 15.6. The Vanguard fund has a PE ratio of much closer to 17. So the higher the price you pay, the lower the expected returns. Uh, that's a very good example. And here's another one. DFA looks at price-to-book ratio. So the lower the price-to-book, the higher the expected return. DFA's fund has a price-to-book ratio of 1.1. Vanguard's fund is 1.6, so almost 50% more expensive relative to book value. Of course, Buffett likes to buy stocks that trade at low prices to book, and DFA fund looks more like the kinds of company that Warren Buffett buys. So that's the difference. Both funds do exactly what they're supposed to do at relatively low cost, but DFA funds give you more exposure to these factors. And as we mentioned, DFA is now adding a screen for profitability as well. And as one example, that should show up in lower prices to cash flow. DFA's fund is 47 and Vanguard's fund is higher at over 6. One of the things that Warren Buffett talks about, and I think is an important point, is that it's not just about the investment. So, you know, the early part of the show, we've been talking about um, index funds and some of the advantages of value and small value and some of the differences, say, for example, between dimensional fund advisors and Vanguard. But I think Warren Buffett's point is, hey, that it's not just about that. It's about other areas. Um, so, Larry, if you could tell us what you think Warren Buffett means by that and where do you get that type of advice, whether you can read that or whether that is an advice that an advisor would give. But could you tell us a little bit about the idea that it's not just about investments? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that I always tell people you should never work with an investment advisor, uh, which may sound strange, but you should only work with someone who is a true wealth advisor looking out for your entire financial picture. Uh, But before we delve into that portion of it, uh, what Buffett is talking about, I believe, is here. You could have uh, a great uh, you know, investment plan in terms of your asset allocation, and if there is even such a thing as a perfect asset allocation, it does you no good unless you have the stomach uh, asset ability to deal with the uh, bear markets we know which occur with great regularity. In fact, uh, Jim, when the 208 crisis hit, I did a little research and went back uh, 40 years and found that we had had a major crisis, maybe not quite as big as that one, but a major crisis about once every two and a half years. So if you've got, even at 65, you've probably got a 30-year horizon you've got to plan for, you should be planning to have to deal with 14 or so crises. And, boy, you better have the discipline And that's really what separates Warren Buffett, I think, from other investors. Not just that he had identified these stock characteristics to buy, but he never in his career engaged in a panic selling. 
Uh, and that's a big problem. So the job of a good advisor is not only to make sure you have the right strategy and you haven't taken too much risk, because if you do, you will panic and sell, but to enforce the discipline not only to buy when panics happen and markets crash, not because you're predicting anything, but you're simply rebalancing the portfolio to its targets, but also tax managing the portfolio, uh, harvesting losses in taxable accounts. And, for example, in 2008, we had many clients who owned small businesses and operated at a loss, and we were engaged in lots of Roth conversions uh, because they could convert from a Roth uh, from a traditional IRA to a Roth and not have to pay any taxes because their business uh, covered their uh, the losses or provided the losses to shield the income that year, and then all future uh, withdrawals would be tax free. So you want somebody who is looking uh, at all of those issues and providing the discipline. Uh, returning to this issue about why you want to work with a true wealth manager, someone like yourself, you can have that perfect investment plan, but as a great example, that plan can fail for reasons that have nothing to do with investing. Great example, I worked with a young advisor about 20 years ago and helped him review his plan. Pretty good one. I made some minor suggestions. But after that, we did a needs analysis. He was a young guy married with a couple of kids, and he didn't have enough insurance. We recommended he buy a couple of million dollar declining term policy because that would be the cheapest to cover the need. And as he lived and worked, he would save and invest, and that would grow. And each year passed by, there'd be one less year to, of support. The good news was he took our advice, bought that policy. The bad news, unfortunately, was he was dead a year later of cancer. So you could have had that perfect investment plan, but if somebody wasn't looking out for situations that had nothing to do with that, whether it was the loss of a life, uh, having liability insurance, making sure you have an umbrella policy, having disability policy, many of our people now looking at needs for long-term health care, and integrating the estate planning, things like when do you take Social Security, which I recommend your book to all of your uh, listeners. It's an important part of the story here. And making sure your estate plan, your will, having durable powers of attorney for health and medical care, these are all extremely important issues, and they change over time as life events occur. Well, you did happen to mention the two areas that we love to, and we call it running the numbers. So um, what you did in 2008 just makes all the sense in the world. That is, I always tell people, let's say we typically work more with IRA and retirement plan owners and business owners, but I always tell people that usually the best years to make a Roth IRA conversion, and typically you want to do it at the lowest tax rates like you did in the year 2008, uh, for your business owners are the years that they do not have wages, so they're retired. On the other hand, they are less than 70, so they don't have their minimum required distributions from their IRA. And we actually run mathematical models and determine literally the ideal both year and amount to convert. And then we integrate that strategy with Social Security 
and come up with, well, this is what we think that you should do for Social Security. This is what we think your spouse should do for Social Security. This is what we think you should do for Roth IRA conversions. And then we, you know, we show the, let's say, the differences between what we might come up with, which might be a combination of holding off on Social Security in a series of Roth conversions versus, say, taking it at 62 and not making Roth conversions. And the difference over time can literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I think your point that it's not just about investments is very important. And then you had mentioned the state planning and insurance and disability and all these factors that probably should be taken into consideration. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because it oh, is... Oh, and Jim, one, one quick thing I want to make, and there's no robo-advisor that will be looking out for all of these issues for you. All right, good. I like a little slam on the robo-advisors. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the other thing that is, let's say, um, perhaps one difference between a wealth advisor and a financial advisor or even a stockbroker, and now we have some new legislation on it, is the relatively uh, new requirement that if you are going to invest somebody's rollover 401k plan, that that must be invested with a fiduciary standard. I was wondering if you could tell our audience uh, what that means and what the implications of that are and how that actually might affect their choice of who they work with. Yeah, this is really, unfortunately, one of the great tragedies in our country that the politicians have been overrun, if you will, by the lobbyists. Uh, imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor was not required to give advice that was in your best interest or an attorney, whatever. They all have fiduciary responsibilities. A fiduciary under the law is required to give advice that only considers the client or the patient's uh, position. So you can't recommend anything because you or your firm will benefit from it. Unfortunately, stockbrokers, insurance agents, almost all of them and many other advisors, anyone who's on commissions, for example, operates under a much weaker standard called the suitability standard. And the simple example I like to provide is this. Let's say we decide to recommend somebody put money in an S&P 500 index fund because that's appropriate. You and I would have to recommend the lowest cost vehicle uh, because that's in their interest because all S&P 500 index funds are identical except for expenses. So you might recommend a Vanguard fund or an ETF, whichever is more appropriate for the situation. Both are going to be exceptionally low cost. On the other hand, if you're a insurance salesman, you got a 401k plan and your rec and your funds are in there, they might recommend that you buy uh, you know XYZ insurance company's S&P 500 fund which might have an expense ratio of 50 or 75 basis points instead of Vanguard's maybe 7. Uh and you and I legally couldn't do it, but they can. So the simple question I would ask your listeners to consider, why would you ever, I can't think of a single reason why, ever choose to work with somebody who is not required under the law to give you advice that's solely in your interest? I think the answer is obviously there are no reasons, and the only people, reason people 
choose to do so is because they're unaware of the difference. I would agree with that. But I noticed in your answer you took a little shot at Washington and saying that uh, you can't understand why Washington doesn't make that a strict rule. Oh, I understand rule. why. It's the lobbyists who put pressure on these people, and every one of them who voted against uh, the Obama uh, uh, program were requiring fiduciaries, in my opinion, should be tarred and feathered and run out of town with no holds barred. <laughs> well, it sounds like you don't have a very strong opinion about this. So yeah, It's a uh, disgrace, actually, uh, uh, that anyone should be allowed to offer advice that isn't in their client's interest. I'm sure none of your listeners can come up with a single reason why they would ever choose to work with somebody who isn't giving them advice that's solely in their interest. Well, is it fair to say that you also don't have any strong feelings about the election? And um, and I'm not going to even ask you about support, but maybe what listeners uh, should be thinking about as uh, the election nears. Yeah, there we actually have... And by the way, you have uh, about two minutes. All right. So... All of the advice I give, like you do, Jim, is based upon academic research, not our opinion. So here's what I can tell people. We know the research shows the following. When Democratic voters are faced with a Democratic president in office, they are much better investors than Republican voters. And the reverse is true. So when Republicans voters have a Republican president in office, they become much better investors than their Democratic counterparts. And the reason is simple. When the party you favor is in power, you tend to be more confident that the problems will be resolved in a favorable way, so you tend to do nothing. Maybe at most rebalance your portfolio, but you don't engage in panic selling. So in 2000 through 2002, after the 911 events and the markets crashed, I know Republican investors were much better. They were much more likely to stay the course than Democrats. When 2008-9, that financial crisis hit, the reverse was true. All the calls I was getting about worries about the next Great Depression came from Republicans and Democrats tended to be more willing to stay the course. So the advice I have for your listeners is to be like Warren Buffett and not look at your political views and don't let them bias your investment decisions in any way. You're likely to make a mistake if you do. Well, thank you so much. Again, we are here with Larry Swedro, author of Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Thank you so much, Larry. My pleasure. Happy to come back anytime, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com.